0: Work is no longer just about productivity and metrics. It's about people. And when we focus on positivity, communication, belonging, and development, the numbers take care of themselves. This is Work Human Radio, where we talk to authors, researchers, and business leaders about the latest trends making work more human around the world.
1: Welcome back to Work Human Radio. I am your host, Todd Schneck, joined by my friend and colleague, Mike Wood. Mike, uh, boy, is this going to be an important conversation. It took me a long time to realize it was okay to be happy at work. It is, it is.
2: And we got one of the foremost people on that, Natalie Kogan. Wonderful to have you back. I first met you a couple months ago. You came to the WorkHuman headquarters, but we're glad to have you. And when you hear a good story, you don't forget it. So I want you to start off with, what's your background? Because it's a very interesting story.
0: Sure. And I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm not just a fan of WorkHuman. I feel like WorkHuman and I have been on this journey to find each other. So it's an honor. The story, and I think this is what I shared when I came to the headquarters, is that Doing what I do now, which is teaching happiness as a skill to employees and companies, is the last thing that I ever expected to do in my life. And the story, the journey begins really far. I grew up in the former Soviet Union, and when I was 13, my parents and I left everything we had behind and everyone we knew and the life we knew to try and make our way to the United States as refugees. And we were persecuted in Russia. And so this was a way to kind of escape and get a better life. And we spent a few months in refugee camps in Europe with hundreds of thousands of other Russian Jewish refugees applying for permission to come to the U.S. And, you know, I talk about it now as a story, but I lived through this. It was a really scary experience. I remember being hungry, and my mom telling me to not come home before six o'clock because there was no food to give me. My daughter now is the age that I was back then. So to imagine a parent saying that to a child, right? So it was scary for me. It was scary for me to watch my parents be so helpless. And so in so many ways, it was a formative experience because when we did get permission to come to the United States, it was the biggest dream. And for me, that kind of set up, in a way, a lot of pressure. Like it was this huge gift to build my life in America I had to do something big with it. And so we started our journey in America and the projects outside of Detroit. Very grateful to have refugee status because that's when you get welfare and food stamps to get started. And, you know, I was 13. At 13, you don't want to move across the street. I hardly spoke English. The English that I spoke came out of my mouth with a horrible accent. Remember how kind we are in eighth grade? How (laughs) compassionate, right? So I went to school every day and kids made fun of me and I was in remedial classes because I didn't understand what was being said. And the only things that made me feel good is when I achieved something, like even small things. I remember the day they moved me into regular English class. That felt huge. I felt happy. And so amidst all this fear and anxiety that I felt and, you know, worrying about how I was ever going to make it, how my parents were going to make it, achievements would make me feel good. You know, eventually my parents got jobs. We moved out of the projects. I ended up graduating third in my high school class. I went to Wesleyan. I graduated first in my class in Wesleyan. And Every time I achieved something, it was this happiness bubble. I was proud. My parents were proud. And so I decided this is how I'm going to reach my American dream. This is how I was going to become happy. I was going to achieve so many things. I was going to become so successful. I was going to take care of my family. And then I would get the prize of happiness. I treated happiness always as like something you have to earn. You have to struggle into it. And it was like a prize you got for a life well lived, for achieving enough. And for the better part of 20 years, I lived according to this I'll be happy when idea. And I can see you guys nodding because we all fall into that trap. My circumstances might've been different, but our brain loves to kind of hold out happiness as this carrot. Like I'll be happy when I get a new job, I get a promotion, you know, I move, I have a different house, I look different. And for me, all my I'll be happy wins were around achievements. And the thing is to this day, very proud because I work so hard and I achieved so much. I graduated first in my class at Wensland. I went to work at McKinsey, a big consulting company. By the age of 26, I was a managing director at a venture capital firm in New York. There's less than 6% women in that industry. You know, I published books. I started companies. I married my college sweetheart. We had a beautiful baby daughter. We lived in New York City. This was my dream. So on the outside, like you'd say, I had it all. Like I should have felt so happy. but. I didn't feel happy for like more than a fleeting moment because every time I'd achieved that professional success and the bubble would pop. And my only answer was to work harder, to do more, to sleep less, to push myself more. Because I treated happiness as a prize that I needed to achieve enough to get, because I didn't feel happy, I just said, okay, I'm not working hard enough. I'm not pushing hard enough. I'm not doing enough things at the same time. And this is what I did for 20 years until I couldn't anymore. I don't know the right term for it. I talk so much, but I still struggle. I burnt out. I burnt out physically. I wasn't able to get out of bed. I burnt out emotionally. Everything went dark and it was so scary because I was failing everyone who mattered to me. I was failing my daughter and my husband and my team at work and all the people that relied on me. And I didn't know what to do. I just knew that I had to find a different way because the thing is, I felt hopeless about feeling better, but I wasn't willing to give up like on my goals and my dreams and all the things I wanted to build. And I stumbled into research on happiness. And to be honest with you, my first reaction was, what a bunch of BS. <laughs> I can say that on the radio, right? Uh, we yeah. hear okay. that
2: a lot at work, human activity.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, but that's what I thought. And my father is a scientist. He's a polymer physicist. I grew up with deep respect for science, but I was like, this is so weird. Like people study happiness and it shows that actually there are small things that you can do that fundamentally improve your brain chemistry and make you feel better. And I would have dismissed it, except I was really desperate. And so in a way that I never expected, actually opening up to thinking about my emotional health in a very different way, set me on this journey to not just practice it, not just learn how to thrive in my work and do my work in a way that it fuels me instead of drains me. And it fuels people I work with instead of exhausting them. It set me on this journey to become the teacher of what we now call the happier method to people and companies and employees. And you can probably hear it in my voice. It's work, but it's a life calling that I never expected to find me. And so that's
2: yeah, so you the found, shortest version yeah.
0: that I can describe of how I got here.
2: So you found your happiness from within in the work that you were doing. I mean, there's numerous studies out there in the old saying, money doesn't buy happiness. Mm. You know, so, but there's numerous studies out there of even like lottery winners. You know, yes. they say, oh, I'm going to be happy if I win the lottery. And then they win the lottery and they're like, now what? And it just spirals down from there. Exactly.
0: So, and the underlying thing, you know, it's interesting. When I first started to like read the research and understand this, I couldn't understand what does it mean to find it from within? Like that didn't resonate with me. But I think the first core shift is to recognize that happiness isn't a prize we get for doing certain things, which would be on the outside, but actually if we cultivate our emotional health, it puts us in the best self, in our best, highest performing self to actually do all the things we care about. And so happiness is not an output of a life well lived. It's actually one of the core inputs into enabling us to do our work. And that for me is how I think about it from within. And the other enormous mindset shift that I made that now I'm share with as many people as will listen is that happiness isn't something you feel, it's something you do, it's a skill. And, like with any skill, the more you practice, the better you get. And so, what I spent a couple of years doing for myself, and then through trial and error and more research, and now having really had the honor of teaching these skills to hundreds of thousands of people and companies, is identify these five core skills, all based in research. That when we practice them intentionally and together and consistently on our own and with our teams, they help us build this emotional health as our foundation and they help as a team build this healthy culture so we can thrive. And I'm happy to go through the skills, but that's the big mindset shift is that we stop looking at happiness as a state of mind or a prize that we get, and then that's how it is. And think of it as a more dynamic experience as something that we practice, like we do with any skill, writing, communicating, running, painting.
1: Well, I love the fact that I live in a country where our founding document says we are allowed to pursue happiness. Mm-hmm. But I've long wondered does that mean we think it's something that has to be given to us? Mm. And it was, took me a long time in my life to realize that I could just choose. And it goes back, you could think about the Viktor Frankl situation yes. and say, yes. all right, it's mindset We're and all, best all that. Books ever. So, I mean, this idea of this as a skill, this is a thing as a habit, this is mm-hmm. a skill, it's something we do. Yes. My observation of mankind is that most of us don't know how to do that. So, and you're also delivering a presentation later today. Mm-hmm. I imagine you're going to be talking about this idea. Yes. So share with us a bit about how to do this and what are some steps we can take to, to start Feeling and being happy.
0: Yes. Awesome. So I don't want to go through all the five skills because I actually <laughs> would love to dive into a few, but I want to give a couple of specific practices that if you start there, you're already making huge progress. So one of the core skills that is part of the happier method that I teach is gratitude. Now... When I started to learn about gratitude, I thought it was like a really nice idea. You know, like you come to dinner on Thanksgiving in America, you hold hands, you say, I'm so grateful for this food, and then you chow. Like it was this nice thing. So I was like, I don't understand how this little light idea is going to alter how I feel. And yet there's more than 11,000 different research studies that show when you consistently practice gratitude as a practice, as a skill and you develop a grateful mindset, it not only makes you happier, it makes you more productive, more motivated, more resilient, on and on and on. And so the point there is to take it out of, oh, it's a nice idea. Like we all know gratitude is good for us, but it's only good for us if we practice. And so what I am passionate about and what we, why we have a whole happier at work program that we work with companies on is we have to take these nice ideas and this research And practice. And so I want to share my favorite practice for teams around gratitude. I'm going to talk about it in my talk and I call it gratitude meeting bookends. It is so simple. You begin and end a meeting by sharing your authentic and specific gratitude with another teammate. The only requirement is that you mean it and that you're specific. So Mike, I'm grateful for you. Your brain goes, eh, my brain goes, eh. Not really, (laughs) but Mike, I'm really grateful about the thoughtful questions you're asking in this interview. So when you're specific with your gratitude, the recipient feels what researchers call socially valued. And that's why gratitude contributes to our motivation and engagement and performance. And so begin and end your meeting by doing that. And I cannot tell you how many companies and teams I've introduced this practice to. It sticks. People do it. And the response is incredible because it transforms not just the meeting, but gratitude helps us to build more authentic relationships. And authentic relationships means collaborative teams, means psychological safety, means we do our best work. And the reason I love making a part of a meeting is for two reasons. First of all, Gratitude is something a little bit vulnerable. To be grateful for someone, you have to open up a little, and it's not always easy to do at work. There's a statistic I share later in my talk that 58% of employees say they almost never hear gratitude from their boss, and 37% of bosses say they never share gratitude with their employees. There's a lot of reasons, but I think it's uncomfortable. It feels weird. And so when you make it part of a meeting, well, a meeting is natural flow of your day. It doesn't ask you to write a gratitude note or to do anything special. It's already integrated into your day. And the other reason is we all hate meetings. <laughs> I mean, who yeah. gets excited? Oh, I have another meeting on my yeah, calendar. Yeah, yeah. I go. Yeah. And so when you bookend it with gratitude, you actually increase the potential that a meeting is more creative, more collaborative, more inclusive. So that's my favorite practice for teams to practice gratitude. And the other skill that I want to touch on that I'm talking about later today is intentional kindness. Mm. Now... I have to tell you how many times I get on stage or we do a Happier at Work workshop and I introduce a skill and people look at me kind of like, kindness is a skill. Like, it's so weird. Like, we all think we're very kind. All of us here right now, we think we're very kind, but it doesn't matter if you think you're kind unless you're intentionally practicing kindness as part of your daily life as a skill, you're not feeling the benefits and neither is your team. And so I focus on kindness as one of the skills. Actually, when I was doing my research, I came to it from a different place, from rudeness, the lack of kindness, the impact of rudeness on our ability to do our work and our workplaces is crazy. You guys, there's an epidemic of rudeness. It's crazy. When you experience an act of rudeness at work, you reduce your work effort by 50%. You reduce the quality of your work. You are 50% less likely to come up with creative ideas. And this is maybe the next one is the scariest one. 90% of employees who someone is rude to them say they retaliate not only (laughs) against that colleague, but against the company in some way. Mm -hmm. So rudeness perpetuates rudeness. And rudeness is terrible because it makes us feel unsafe. And so not only does it feel crappy, when we feel unsafe, we don't do good work. And so kindness is the antidote to all of that. And there's so much research that shows when you practice kindness, you feel good. Kindness is contagious. So when I do something kind towards another person, they're more likely to do something kind. Observing an act of kindness at work makes you more likely to do something kind. And teams that have a culture of kindness are more productive, more energized. We talk a lot about employee engagement. One of the best ways to get there is to create a culture of psychological safety where everyone feels supported by their colleagues through kindness and so here's my favorite kindness practice that again sounds so simple sometimes you don't give it a second thought but schedule regular check-ins with your colleagues so in one of the research studies 40% of employees said that when their colleague just says hey, Like, how is it going? Just checks in with them above any other measure. That's what makes them feel like they belong and they're not alone. And the reason I use the word schedule is, of course, we check in with our colleagues from time to time, but think of it as a regular practice. Put it on your calendar every day at 3 p.m. Check in with a colleague. And it's incredible to see teams where that becomes a regular practice because, yes, they feel uplifted. Yes, they feel energized, but they feel safe. And what that means is when something goes wrong, you're not afraid to tell your boss or your colleagues. And we all know that in work environments, it's very easy to hide mistakes. It's very easy mm-hmm. to hide that. So kindness and practicing it intentionally as a skill doesn't just create an uplifting team atmosphere. It actually creates this fabric of connection and psychological safety that people are open to sharing mistakes and failures, which then helps everyone improve. So those are my two practices, gratitude, meeting bookends, and scheduling a check-in with a colleague to cultivate your gratitude and kindness skills.
2: So I will say that in our product in the work human cloud we have conversations which is a tool that mm-hmm. we set up weekly check-ins with staff and you have a set amount of goals and whatever but it's always that real-time kind of feedback yeah. because if I were to only get a meeting with my boss Kevin who you mm-hmm. know if I check in with Kevin every Tuesday at 9 30 if I were to only have that once a quarter or once a year I have all that time in between to have my brain tell me that something's going wrong yes. or something's up or I have all this delusional thoughts that could come out there. But if I am talking to him on a weekly basis, I always know where I stand yes. and I've developed this rapport with him. So I've, I've been working with him for almost six years now. So awesome. I have that time to, I feel safe. hmm to basically talk to him about anything. If there's something that I don't agree with that we're doing or there's some sort of problem, it's okay to bring it up. It's not going to affect me.
0: Right. What a great example of what a simple practice like checking in can do, right? So yes. think about that. Think about that on a grand scale of a team or a company. Well, think that's of the awesome. trust that
1: it begins yes. to develop. that's awesome. Natalie, uh, there is going to be that CEO or that management team that's going to say, Wait a minute. You think I should be talking to my team about happiness and gratitude and kind of, I have products to build. I have profits to generate. Yes. I don't have time for this frilly, frilly Sluffy stuff. Thing. Oh, how, yeah. do you, how do you overcome that obstacle? Because I imagine that's pretty common. Tale. Ten
0: times a day. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And the first way I overcome that obstacle is to tell that person that I so get it. I was them. I spent most of my life as that happiness skeptic, right? Because I thought happiness, first of all, didn't have anything to do with work. It was a prize I would get if I did enough good work, I would get it over there. So first of all, I get it. And this is one of the reasons that I feel that in a way I was chosen to do this work because I didn't learn about happiness in a lab. I don't have a PhD, that's my dad. I learned about it by failing at it for most of my life as a business executive, as a leader, as a CEO, right? So first is I really get that sentiment. I don't judge it. We don't live in a culture that talks about happiness and work in the same place. So I don't expect our leaders to get it. But what I say back is let's look at the research. Because the research at this point, and you guys know this, is unequivocal. We're not at one or two studies. We're at tens of thousands of studies that show that employee happiness is not an extra. It is not fluffy. It is not woo It's actually, I call it the greatest unrealized asset that we have in our companies. If you remember in the 90s, right, it was all about productivity and efficiency, like increasing efficiency and productivity. And we have squeezed out all the efficiency we can. We all work a ton right? And we're as efficient as we can be. Where's the next place that we're going to get innovation and creativity and more productivity? Well, we have to tap in our human ability. And there are literally mountains of research in every discipline that show that when you feel good, And by good, I don't just mean positive, by the way. One of the things that I talk about is happiness isn't just feeling positive all the time. Mm. It's also learning how to embrace all of the different emotions that we have as human beings and how to get through the difficult ones with resilience and compassion. So when you cultivate that kind of emotional health, every research study shows you perform better on every parameter. You have more ideas, you're more resilient, you're more motivated, more productive, on and on and on. And that's what I lead with. And The thing is, like we always say, I am willing to hear anyone's argument, but it's really hard to argue with research and examples. And I'll tell you, I can't say I've convinced every leader, but I've convinced a lot. And again, it's because I approach them from a place of, I've been there. I also used to think happiness is fluffy and what does it have to do with work? (laughs) It actually has everything to do with work and the research is there to prove it.
1: You also have a book. I do. Tell us about that.
0: So my book came out in May of 2018. It is... The most difficult and meaningful creative project I've ever created, it's called Happier Now, How to Stop Chasing Perfection and Embrace Everyday Moments. And the first half of the book is my story with a lot more detail, not just as a refugee, but as a very, very successful executive who hits a wall and almost loses everything and how I find my way back. And the second half of the book are the five core happier skills and 37, I think, little practices to help you practice them. And... The greatest gift to me since the book has come out has been hearing from an overwhelming number of people from all kinds of backgrounds and careers and stay-at-home moms and busy executives that said, oh my God, I did this one little practice and I feel different. I feel more resilient. I am less stressed out. I'm yelling at my husband less often. My employee thanked me. I'm actually able to look at my life and not constantly focus on what's wrong. And so hearing that it's like the gift that I get every day. And so uh, I'm very proud of it. And it's very bright and yellow. Like I am, you can't see (laughs) me because yellow scientifically makes you happier. Yellow and orange, they make you happier and makes me happier. So we made sure this part of the book, but yeah, I'm very, very grateful to have had the opportunity to share my story and the practices in it.
1: You know, Mike, I started this year of practice. I uh, have a notebook that I use to take just notes as I go through the work day. And I made a point. I read some articles It was a 2019. Here's what you do to make 2019 the best year ever kind mm. of a thing. <laughs> and it said, start this gratitude journal. And I thought, well, eh, I'm one of those guys. I thought, that's oh, kind, of, mm. yeah. kind of a girl mm. thing to do and all that. Well, I started making little random notes. Uh, when something good happened, I said, I'm grateful that my wife made a good meal today, or I'm grateful that I felt good today, or mm. that I had a good run, or I had, and I just made these little random notes. And I don't do it all the time, but I do it when I think of it, and it feels good to do that because mm. you're kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. The, but I also realize the treasure of looking back yes. and saying, "Wow, well, a lot of good stuff happened. I yes. thought I had a bad week, but actually, there's some good stuff yes. that happened. That's important too, yeah."
0: I love this example. So, first of all, your rock for practicing gratitude, <laughs> your gratitude here. I always say this, and here's why. So, and this is why what you said is so powerful. Our brains are naturally much more attracted to anything that's negative. We all have what researchers call a negativity bias. And it's a bell curve, so some people have it more, some people have it less, but we all have it because biologically we evolved that way because danger usually comes with negative stimuli. So our brain is constantly looking out to protect us from danger. How does it do that? It looks for any negative stimuli. And so we're much more affected by something stressful happen, something annoying happen. And And our brain is also fantastic at getting used to all the good things. So all the good stuff, like, yeah, yeah, autopilot, I'm going to focus on the negative. So when you practice gratitude and when you go and look at, if you keep a journal or you keep track of it somewhere, like we have an app to keep track of your gratitude journal, what you're doing is you're reminding your brain, hey, there's actually good things that happen. And you're countering your brain's natural negativity bias. That's actually one of the reasons gratitude is so powerful because research shows just three weeks of intentionally writing down a few things you're grateful for every day reverses the negativity bias in your brain, changes the chemistry of your brain and starts to grow new neuron connections that your brain now is like, oh, uh I am to look for good things. Okay, oh, thank you, wife, for making a good meal. And I think it's incredible when we recognize that there's a great quote. It comes from Buddhism. I don't know who it's attributed to, but it says that our brain is a terrible master, but a great servant. And if you think about that, right? So if we just let our brain pull us wherever it wants to go, we'll just think about it. How many thoughts have you had in the last 10 minutes of listening to me? A thousand? I've had some, and I'm doing this interview. Our brain gets distracted. It gets all over the place, right? So it's not a great master, but it also is fantastic when we ask it to focus on something. When we tell it what it is we want it to do, our blame plasticity, right? That's the term we use a lot. So when you practice gratitude, what you're telling your brain is, I want you to focus on positive things. I want you to not take them for granted. And over time, the brain says, fantastic. I'm good at doing that. And I think it's incredible to recognize that power that our brain wants to help us. And the story you shared is exactly that. When you look back at the things you wrote, you're reminding your brain, hey, you focus on all these difficult things. There's all these wonderful things. And the brain goes, Oh, okay. I should focus on those more. That's the power of gratitude.
1: By the way, when you're reviewing that, you're happy. Exactly. (laughs) And as you said, I mean, this is the key thing. I mean, happiness is a skill. Yes. That all of us can can learn and develop. And that's a lifelong practice, right? It's a lifelong practice. There's
0: no end. But the beautiful thing with all of these practices and all the skills that we've talked about, you feel an immediate boost. Right, gratitude, your brain floods with so many dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. So you feel an immediate boost, and the more you practice, the stronger your longer-term emotional health is. And so it's not like drudgery to practice this, you know what I mean? It's not like going to the gym. I mean, I know some people love going to the gym. I'm not one of them. But it's joyful to practice these and you get all these other related benefits. But yes, and I think that's what people ask me, someone was asking me before, like, what's your mission? And I say, my mission is to democratize happiness because when we start to think of it as a skill, it takes away our personal stories. Like my personal story was, I'm a tortured Russian Jew. Have you heard the thing they say Russians are good at? Russians are good at three things. Suffering, making others suffer, and complaining about suffering. (laughs) Okay, you guys think it's funny. You have to meet the women in my family. (laughs) I'm in third place. My grandma was in first, my mom's in second, I'm in third, but I am amazing at suffering. So my story for a while was, oh, I'm just never going to feel happy because suffering is part of who I am. When you approach happiness as a skill, it takes away our personal stories. I hear from so many people like, oh, I'm just really a negative person. There's no such thing. You may have a heavier negativity bias, but if you practice, you'll improve. And treating it as a skill makes it accessible to anyone doesn't matter what job you have how much money you have your background your nationality your sex it doesn't matter it's a skill just like riding a bike anyone can learn to ride a bike my daughter plays the piano anyone can learn to play the piano and this is my ultimate mission is to democratize happiness because it is accessible to all of us it is not just a nice idea and the only thing that it requires is for us to change how we think about it and to practice
2: love it
1: I, we we could sit here all day. Me too. It I, just makes yeah. me happy to talk to her. I mean, so, well, speaking of your presentation, uh, Natalie, you need to get over to it. Yes, so we're going to wrap this one up before we let you go. Quickly, should anyone have any questions of you, want to get their hands on a copy of this book or learn more about your work, where do they go?
0: Very simple. You go to Happier.com. It's spelled exactly as it sounds, and there you can learn all about our Happier Work Programs, the book. There's tons of free videos. You can learn all about the five Happier skills. And you won't miss my contact information if you go to Happier.
1: All right. Natalie Kogan, the founder of Happier and Happier at Work. Great to have you. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: It's an honor. Thank you both. If you want to see business leaders, culture keepers, and industry experts come together to share the latest research and ideas for making work more human, you need to be at Work Human Live in 2020, May 11th through the 14th in San Antonio. Visit WorkHuman.com to see the full lineup of speakers and reserve your spot in the number one conference of 2020.